0: Welcome to the Insights to Action Inspirational Insights podcast. My name is Donna Jones, your host, and today we are talking about meaning and resilience within the context of both personal, organizational pandemic, and then applying that to how we adaptively make decisions in the world today. With me is Cameron Powell, who is a former lawyer, (laughs) author, co-founder of Human Centric Labs. What did I forget, Cameron?
1: Tech entrepreneur and coach. I guess.
0: All right. Let's get started. Talk to us, if, if you would, about meaning and resilience. And let's start with your personal story because you're an author. You've written, a, I think, a very interesting book on on a journey you took. Let's start with, with how your personal experience with resilience has both helped you with this pandemic, but also what what are the lessons learned that we can all learn from that?
1: I guess it goes back when positive psychologists have looked at people who come from challenging circumstances or, or people in challenging circumstances like poverty or, you know, not having a father in the home or whatever the, the thing is, abuse, whatever, it seems that consistently about a third of of the people in, in that situation manage to come out of it, able to move on and grow and flourish. Um, in other words, they, they survive it. And of course, that means there's about two thirds that that really are, are felled by the experience. I didn't really know that growing up, but aside from, from having been born white and male, I wasn't really gifted with knowledge of how things worked or connections. I was raised by a single mom and her two or three jobs at a time were not able to vault us above the poverty line. No one from my family had gone to a four-year college. A lot of my Childhood seemed to be taken up by custody battles over my sister, so it was a very stressed atmosphere. It was very tight financially. I ended up doing lots of jobs myself as a kid. But I suppose it didn't help that education and learning themselves weren't really valued in the circles that I grew up in. I mean, outside of our teachers, in our community. You know, it just it just wasn't that that strong a value. But you know, somehow. Maybe blessed with a mom who was a, a, a fearless, a tireless reader, who was German and, and introduced me to you know, things beyond our rural towns that we lived in, who, who would take me to Germany if we could save up the money to visit family there. I saw that there's a different world out there. And, and like mom, I read everything that wasn't nailed down. And so I understand the limits of today's what are called corporate signals as only someone born without them can, you know, the signals of credentials and, and experiences and brand name companies and this school and that degree and so forth. And so I've kind of moved into having a number of those corporate signals as well. I, I went from the, the background I mentioned to valedictorian of my high school and college uh, classes and president of my my Harvard Law School class and and then, through government and startups and and writing books and beyond, and so I, I, I have a I think a rare perspective on the hurdles posed by conventional ideas about talent and ability and the real importance of of sheer talent, passion, grit, and how much really how much more of that really matters in in any job that that we get involved in? If we look at if we look at the way most of hiring is done in, in, in the West, it really boils down to this sort of laziness about keywords that can grasp prior experience or titles. It really is unfortunate because we shoot ourselves in the foot on on finding people who are resilient, who are creative, who who do have the necessary talents for the job. And, you know. We, we know from, from, I think it's Peter Drucker, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. You could also say that talent eats prior experience every meal of the day in terms of its importance in an organization. But prior experience is reducible to keywords that we can search in resumes. And talent is a much harder ballgame. It's closer to literary criticism or, or psychoanalysis or the kind of interpretation that, that lawyers do. It's hard cognitive work. And so to avoid that work, we end up focusing on keywords in how we, we bring people into our organizations.
0: Thank you. The, the pandemic has really pointed to meaning as being a, a big factor. If I do a Google Trends research, meaning is like way up there. Can you speak to that with respect to both your personal experience and how that plugs into organizational reflection and retooling and reinvention at this point in time?
1: Yeah, so meaning, meaning is really where it's all at. You can look at it from the point of view of, say, where, where do all the great achievements in business, in sports, in music, in art, where do they all happen? Well, they happen in, 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 a, in what we call the flow state, right? When you're, you're completely absorbed in what you're doing, you lose track of time. It's, it's, it's essentially effortless. It's like the opposite of stress. You would do it for free if you could, right? Flow is where we all want to be. We're three to 500% more productive, more creative in that state, right? If you want to use the language of, of, of employee engagement, flow is basically maximum engagement. And why is that important? Well, and how does it relate to meaning? Flow basically is a three-part recipe. Number one, you're using your strengths, your core strengths. I don't mean skills, that, things that can be learned in an afternoon, like how a social media site works or, or various bits of knowledge that can be learned, but, but strengths that, that come from talents you had as a kid and that you've cultivated. You've put in your 10,000 hours, your 20,000 hours until they become strengths. Strengths, unlike skills, are transferable to other domains to other areas to other jobs. And also strengths unlike skills are one of the key ingredients for how we get into flow. So if you're if you're hiring people because they're skilled at running an excel spreadsheet or something that alone is not going to get them into flow. It has to be paired with some kind of underlying strength like analysis or synthesis or problem solving or or strategy. So so flow requires that we're using our strengths. But the second big piece is that whatever we're doing is personally meaningful to us. And that's true whether it's it's team or group-based flow or whether it's individual flow. We've got to have a sense of meaning and purpose. And then the third piece is simply the level of challenge is well-matched to our abilities. So for example, let's say you're an intermediate skier. You may have a hard time getting into flow on the green slope with trying to teach a friend how to ski, at least... Flow in skiing because it's not well matched to your ability. You may not even find that much meaning in skiing on a on a green slope. Now you might get into flow because you're you 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 have strengths in teaching in empathy because you love that person um, because you enjoy their joy or whatever. But you won't get into flow doing the skiing part. On the other hand, if you're the same intermediate skier, it, it's going to be hard to get into flow on a double black diamond that leaves you overwhelmed, fearful frustrated and self-loathing. So it's really important that you have that sense that, you know, I could fail at any time, I could wipe out at any time, but there's a certain exhilaration that comes from feeling like I'm mastering this, like I'm not wiping out yet. And and that's really where we want people in life. I, I went from telling coaching clients to look for that in their work to telling employers to look for that in their employees. You really need to be optimizing for the flow state. That means you have to focus on strengths, a.k.a. talents, not skills and prior experience and all that. And you need to, 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 to seek employees based on whether they can find and sustain meaning in the role, because that's what's going to keep them around. That's retention. And, and some of that comes from the employees. Some of that comes from a co-creation with the teammates, with the manager, with the CEO, with whoever's responsible for employer branding. Ideally, they understand this importance of meaning. Most of them, I think, don't really. But I think I really got the religion of meaning. I mean, I've, I've, I've always read deeply in literature, in, in comparative religion. I've always been interested in, I guess, what you could call is meaning. But what really, I think, did it for me was this felt experience with trying to make meaning with my mother in her last years. She had had ovarian cancer that was initially misdiagnosed, avoidably in 1999, and she did the chemo in 2000, and she I think thought she was home free until 2010, and then on the very same day that my marriage ended, that evening my mother called and said, "Son," and I wrote about this in the book. I said it was it was you know that most that most horrible of sounds, the sounds of a mother's weeping as it enters the ear of her son, she said, son, the cancer's back. I remember saying, well, if you ever have to do this chemo again, you're not going to have to do it alone. I'll be there this time. And that really became a promise that, that I would keep. I went out to rural Colorado, actually a year before she had to start chemo because she'd had some complications with some surgeries. But I look back now and it was really all about helping her with her meaning. There was only so much I could do for her physical suffering with ovarian cancer. There's almost there's only so much anyone can do. And so I was really concerned, I guess, with with the soul, you know, with with her heart, with her mind. And as I put it in in the first night of my blog when hospice began, I I wrote something to the effect of as long as a consciousness persists and she is able to experience either the joy of meaning or the pain of meaninglessness. I will be here to influence that story. Right? That story of, was I a good mother? Was I a good person? Was I a good friend? Do people love me? Do people know I cared about them? Do I have a legacy? I sensed that, that a lot of her psychological suffering would revolve around those issues. And some of that may have been projection. I think I sensed that my own will one day revolve around those issues. And so I was determined to help her with that meaning. And actually, that process started several years earlier when she said, you know, I, since, since the diagnosis, this was 2010, in 2011, she said, you know, I went on this diet I I lost 45 pounds to try to have a cancer-healthy diet. Now I feel like I need something bigger than just walking around the neighborhood. I need a challenge. In a sense, she needed a source of meaning. She just coincidentally watched something on these German television uh, stations that came in through satellite. Mom was German. and, And she discovered the Camino de Santiago, first in a feature film in German, and then a documentary, and then... (laughs) <laughs> Pretty soon after that, my phone rang, and she said, "I want to do this," and I'm like, "Oh, Mom, I'm trying to get divorced here. I'm trying to do this, and you know, the recession and just a terrible time." And thank God, I, I overcame all that and went with her because it was it was really a, a grand vision quest for meaning, which is a source of resilience. Meaning like nature, like diets, like, like sunshine, like dirt are all things that, that increase our immune system. And so I, so there I was like, I'm going to help her with that. We're going to go on this trip. You know, maybe her cancer will somehow magically go away, but if nothing else, she'll know that she had, she had done something with intention. And I think that's all we really strive to, to do and be. If people are hiring and they're not thinking about employees in that light, that that's what we want is meaning, which comes from, you know, key places like love, helping people, creating things, solving problems, being part of something bigger, doing something great for customers, cleaning the environment, whatever. We all have completely different sources of meaning. It could be I get meaning because I'm in a 35-story you know, office building with a great view and a great salary and, and well-designed business cards, but whatever it is... We want meaning in the work that we do, and that makes us do better work. You're touching on a couple of things. One is you're touching
0: on the part of your work that failed to mention at the beginning, which is the storytelling component. And that bridges immediately over into what organizations are doing right now in terms of rethinking meaning and what they stand for in the context of of a pandemic. I've, I've heard that some companies believe that social issues like diversity and inclusion, or meaning for that matter, falls outside of business and that those are social issues. But I'm hard pressed to find out how you can draw those lines of separation when in fact, the entire survival of the economic fabric is based on an integration with the social fabric
1: it's insane it's like saying you should eat on your own time or you should breathe on your own time work comprises over half of our waking hours and a massive component of our sense of well-being and satisfaction versus anxiety and depression which is the case for a lot of people when two-thirds of of americans are not engaged with their work and a much higher percentage outside of north america you know i've i've seen this attitude from the beginning but the fact is people can 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 speculate poorly in my view that, that somehow this is outside the scope of business but the research overwhelmingly says otherwise happy employees are productive employees happy empl- and productive employees make for happy customers and happy customers make for happy shareholders it's a very simple equation you don't optimize for shareholders In a vacuum without considering customers or employees, you optimize for employees and and everything takes care of itself. We need to have meaning. We need to have good bosses. I totally agree with you. So reflecting back on what you
0: were describing, your mom went through where she had this diagnosis of ovarian cancer, and now she's looking for a bit of adventure, a little bit of edge and, and to add meaning to a life that's a little bit all of a sudden puts in perspective, walking around the block to doing the Camino, which is on my bucket list, by the way, the, the question I have there is that it seems to me we've got an opportunity to reinvent meaning inside companies now. To completely rethink it in light of a pandemic, which when you look at how people have made meaning out of that, what I would observe at least is that out of the two thirds, meaning has been made out of conspiracy theories, out of all sorts of various plots in the United States, I'm not in the United States, but in the United States, those have divided along political lines. There's very clear rationales, but, but there's a bigger opportunity here, which says, how can we use these kinds of interruptions to adapt? Are thinking, whether it's in our personal lives to attain and sustain well-being that comes from self-direction, or whether it's inside an organization that says, okay, you know, quarterly reports and and profit as purpose is not sufficient. We've got a chance to, to expand our horizons and, and our vision, and at the same time, really propel to a different level of, of performance. Your views on that, please.
1: Well, it is, it is an ideal time people to understand i mean our 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 basic ability to get through the pandemic revolves around are we able to find meaning and engagement one of the reasons i think that that a lot of younger people are finding it hard to isolate is that they are less likely to have engaging full-time jobs and so they're like well what else do we have you know we, we we can't just sit at home inert right i mean you you can't you can't ask a, a, a gerbil in a cage to do that without toys to play with, or it starts to get sick. You know, we need stimulation, we need engagement. This is just part of the the human condition. I've felt that myself at times during the pandemic, where I felt at times under-engaged, and I start to think of you know the way that horses, if they're kept in their stall too much, will start chewing on the fence posts. It's called cribbing. They develop psychological issues. I think it's time for a a top-to-bottom reassessment. I mean, meaning needs to be injected at the very beginning. There's a lot of talk about employer branding, and yet if you look at any job description, even the most sophisticated company in terms of marketing and copywriting, Apple, Salesforce, Facebook, whatever, look at their job descriptions. It's a list of features. (laughs) The only benefits there are 401k and free lunch, but no one thought to have a job description that has a section on meaning. What is the meaning and purpose of this role and of what you do here? What is the career path? What about learning and development? What are your teammates like? How will your role help the team, the community, the world, yourself? That's all just completely ignored as if it just doesn't matter. And so we've got all these undifferentiated job descriptions going around out there pretending that meaning doesn't really matter. And so you could say it starts, you know, the rot starts from the very beginning. We're just not focused on things that matter. And then we wonder why we have all these other issues down the road. I think the same lack of understanding, there's a conventional wisdom that views the self-employed as somehow less than, Mm -hmm. say, someone with a corporate track record. Well, there's been you know some, some very large research studies, very large sample sizes, where they looked at this, and they said, you know what? On average, the self-employed have higher levels of ability. They have higher uh, levels of engagement. They make more money, and they're happier. In a sense, we're talking about people who are masters at self-engagement and at finding the meaning in what they do, who actually have higher ability levels, holding education constant. than than the corporate types and yet because their corporate signals if you will their keywords and track record are harder to understand or quantify in the corporate you know context they're viewed as somehow less desirable and it's completely backwards there's a number of reasons for that but one of them is simply that we're not understanding that these are people who've already shown their capacity to generate and sustain meaning their capacity for grit and resilience and perseverance, for autonomy. What could be more important than the ability to work autonomously in a pandemic where everybody's working from home? I mean, it it should have rocketed to the top of the ability to sustain autonomous engagement. It should go go to the top of the list in terms of what we look for in in job description. There's a lot of work we have to do. We've got our work cut out for us because corporate America has spent decades denigrating things like the liberal arts degree, which frankly is, is a training ground for how to, how to de- derive meaning from life, how to read literature, how to understand history, how to analyze an employee's strengths the way that you would analyze a short story based on their behavior-based interviewing stories. The keywords are, are the simple way to understand somebody. You want a more cognitively, cognitively demanding way ask a behavior-based interview question, and then try to walk someone through that and extract their story, that requires the skills of, a, of an investigator, of a, of a lawyer, of a psychoanalyst, of a literary critic. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for somebody who's only read uh, business articles. So we don't really have a lot of those capabilities because we've sort of decided that, again, based on keywords, you have to have a business degree or You have to have a business background or whatever, whatever that means, instead of just the underlying strengths or talents of critical thinking and problem solving, strategy and analysis and synthesis and interpretation and empathy. Those are the things that move the needle.
0: So two things are coming to mind, but but one of them is this idea of keywords, (laughs) which leads us to data-driven decisions, which means you're ignoring your human judgment. You're leaving out the human judgment and accountability for the human dimension, just how complex we are as human beings. Are those decisions being made in HR? And if so, is HR even equipped to bring in judgment? Or is it so data-driven that organizations have absolutely lost their capacity to discern talent?
1: Well, I think we've got this sense of complacency that because technology is involved, I'm holding up air quotes for anyone who doesn't have access to to our Zoom call, or AI, right? AI is going to scan your resume. It's the biggest con in a way. I mean, what's being examined is keywords. They're just counting clumps of keywords. They're not even doing it in the more intelligent way that Google does it. Google doesn't just count the keywords and their placement on a web page, They also look at what are called off-page factors, like who's linking into you, what are those people saying in their links into you, when people see your search result after a, a keyword search, how long do they stay on your page, what does the rest of your website say, Google looks at all of that. But if somebody scans my resume, and I'll tell you an applicant tracking system concludes that I am all about marketing, well, I would say I'm some about marketing. I'm also a, a former trial lawyer. I'm a startup and innovation facilitator. I'm a writer and a speaker, and, and so forth and so on. But if an, an applicant tracking system crawls my resume, all it comes back with is marketing, and it has a few other sort of little things that it thinks it found. It doesn't look off-site and see the books I've written, the reviews that that have been left on those books. It doesn't look at my other websites. It doesn't look at the content of my speeches. It doesn't look at what people say. I mean, it, it's an incredibly limited, blunt instrument. But because these keyword results come back with percentages attached, it gives us this illusion that we've actually discerned something worth discerning. And now we have the top 20% of applicants for this job. We can just throw out the 80% because they didn't have all the keywords. And again, think about what keywords means. It means so-called prior experience. Never mind that experience isn't an output, it's an input. Whether you got anything from that experience or learned anything from that experience is is, is all the difference in the world. And some people are intentional learners and they take massively from everything that they, or at least most things they go through, and some people aren't. Some people don't have the passion for whatever they had their prior experience in, but their resume may bubble to the top because they had that title and that keyword and say marketing communications or sales support or whatever. And so by looking for keywords of past experience, regardless of whether the experience taught us anything, regardless of whether we had any passion for it, even if everybody else on the team already has this experience, so we're not really adding that much to the team incrementally, what we're doing is we're filtering out diversity of thought and experience. I don't just mean racial gender diversity, but those differences that mean in all the research, Any kind of range or diversity of thought and experience, whether it's on a team or inside a single individual's brain, leads to more innovation because the basic idea is you could specialize and ask for everybody to have domain A, but if you have other people on a team who have domains B and C in their experience and knowledge or D and E and F, then what happens is these domains bump up against each other and they clash and there's a spark and that spark is an innovative new idea. And you only get those innovative new ideas if you have that kind of diversity and you're not slavishly trying to get more of the same titles and keywords and prior experience that you already had, which over time tend to keep out people who who come from unconventional track records, come from colleges that, that we don't hear about in the news every day and therefore we don't think they can possibly be as good or whatever. There's a, there's a whole brain cognitive error thing that we do where names that are repeated often, we have a favorable view of them. So if you hear of a historically black college or university and you've never heard of it, oh, well, this isn't really a keyword that that really means much to me. So we lose, we lose a lot of diversity when we keep looking backward in the rear view mirror for more of the same. Have you already done this before? Awesome, come do it again for us. You'd be much better served bringing in someone who who is an inveterate learner and who has learned domains A, B, C, D, and E. Like Steve Jobs. I mean, we wouldn't have fonts today the way we have them or as early as we had them if Steve Jobs hadn't taken a calligraphy class at Reed. But he couldn't be hired at HP or Xerox because he didn't have a college degree, right? No, this was a guy who who was a tireless learner, who was great, great at what's called combinatory play, at putting ideas together, he was being judged based on labels and keywords, basically.
0: It's interesting to me that you make that observation about diversity because that, that, you know, that is one of the advantages for complexity. So if you are using keywords in your HR hiring process to bring on more people, essentially what you're doing is minimizing the chances of finding a good employee because you are not taking into account. Let me put it another way. Discernment is a higher level of consciousness thinking. It is a higher level of perception in terms of, of how we perceive information and data. So you cannot discern mechanically. There's no there's no discernment. It's a simpler sorting device. It's almost like a, a sorting hat. So what is the opportunity that the pandemic offers or that, that we're in right now where we can reinvent how things are done? It's a perfect chance for that because things have been disruptive what can we do with this moment that, that you think would change that kind of pattern, the, the negative pattern that we've been talking about?
1: Boy, there's just so many things. I think we have to realize that, that what we're talking about, looking for great employees to match a role by focusing on keywords that somehow are meant to sum up prior experience, but really just flatten it into one dimension It's essentially what we have learned to call the fixed mindset. And if you're looking for the growth mindsets of innovators, you cannot find them operating from a fixed mindset. We have to understand that in HR. And I think HR needs an infusion of diversity. HR needs physicists and literature majors and marketing people. It needs copywriting. It needs recovering lawyers It needs more of just about everything but MBAs and and people with lots of HR credentials. That's the diversity that's needed is different ways of looking at something, design thinking, lean startup thinking. If you look at the typical job description for a VP of HR, it doesn't ask for anything that's relevant. Diversity to diversity of thought and experience to innovation, different ways of looking for things. It looks for thou shalt have 12 to 15 years prior experience in an HR department. As if HR departments have been historically so hugely successful that that in itself is just a blue chip criterion and have experience in comp and benefits and stuff that is so basic that you can actually literally outsource them to vendors to handle, right? That's, that's not the, the fundamental aspect of what HR needs. It needs people who understand human beings, who are, who are humanists. It needs people who understand the number one skill of managers, which is coaching, people who can inspire, people who can consult with a, with hiring managers and say, no, honestly, Jim, you don't really need more of the same prior experience in your group. That's just a word that you've come up with because it's easy, but there's no evidence that makes for a better employee. You know, we've got to broaden our search. And frankly, we, we need to spend more time reading resumes and cover letters, ideally Some that we've told candidates read how to, because the cover letter has become something so generic and useless that no one reads it. And because no one reads it, the people who write it say, I'm going to write something useless and generic. It just goes around and around. But if we ask cover letters to discuss what are the things that get you into flow, tell me about the last time you've lost track of time, or tell me about how you derive meaning and give me some examples. And if we asked for people for brief videos to record so we could capture all the micro expressions that, that give massive amounts of information more than a piece of paper does, we, we could start to really understand people in something closer to three dimensions than, than this awful, awful user interface of, of the job description and the resume. Oh, you're muted.
0: That's a nice place to start. <laughs> when you look at the things you've gone through, and you are experiencing the pandemic and many others are experiencing that. So it's that two thirds to one third that you started, you know, earlier, which I really appreciate that, that metric, by the way. What did you learn? What did you learn from being part of that one third who used those conditions to, to hit new levels?
1: I think it's complex. On the one hand, I think if you grow up in, in circumstances where there's a lot of stress or trauma a lot of the time. Even coming out of it, your brain can be shaped to be more predisposed to anxiety or depression. So I think that's one legacy. Another, though, is that when you've come through something, you do develop a sense of confidence that you can come through other things. I think it's particularly important for little boys to have a sense of mastery over something. I think one really powerful thing I I did or was allowed to do as a kid my mother was very progressive. She had a lot of faith in me. Other kids couldn't spend the night. They couldn't have a sleepover with, with their friends on a weeknight. My mom was like, you know what? Cameron can, cause, cause he's going to do the homework and get the grades. So why would I restrict him? Right? So this is how at the age of 10, I flew by myself from rural Colorado to Germany and spent the summer there and, and then flew back. And, and I think just Just kind of being forced to be in an experience that I was able to handle and then handling it allowed me to look back and have a sense of capability that very few other kids were able to have. I recognize the importance of if you've gotten through something, it's easier, you know, let's talk about cognitive behavioral therapy or how the stories we tell ourselves, it's easier to tell yourself a story of how you can get through this next thing.
0: One of the things I've observed from the people that I've been working with in a variety of different social issues or political issues, geopolitical issues sometimes, is, is that, the, that going through that kind of an experience really provides a higher level of tolerance for uncertainty. So rather than trying to get everything to become certain again, you're more capable of just holding it as the space yeah. you're in, not trying to wrestle it into anything that would be artificially secure.
1: So tolerance for uncertainty means an ability to, to withhold a reserve judgment, not to jump to conclusions, not to need easy solutions, or, or what scientists call not to, to reach for cognitive ease in all of our thinking, which, which is represented by the keyword or by the prior experience or whatever. Another thing that we don't really look for in employees is the capacity to manage the scariness of uncertainty is absolutely critical to creativity and innovation. Because if what you're doing is creative, then by definition, you are uncertain how it will turn out. Will it be of any quality? Will anyone want it? Will anyone buy it? Is this the right price? Am I going to run out of money before I figure any of this out? Right? Am I going to run out of runway in my personal savings? The ability to manage uncertainty is absolutely crucial for creativity. And it's pretty similar to the personality trait most highly correlated with creativity called openness to experience of the five major personality traits. And openness to experience sounds a lot like someone who is comfortable with the uncertainty of what that experience will bring. So there's a kind of courage involved there of trying new things and being able to manage resiliently the possibility or actuality of failure. I think we don't really understand the elements of of innovation, including that tolerance for uncertainty, just as we don't understand what diversity really means. What do rainforests, coral reefs, cities, and coffee houses have in common? A long track record of disproportionate competition or diversity of ideas and innovation, right? Anytime we get lots of species, people, domains of knowledge and experience together, and they start to clash, whether it's in a Starbucks or or the early coffee houses of London in the early 1700s you get an incredible amount of innovation it's why silicon valley has 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 worked so magically for for decades now or why you know paris in the 20s or vienna in the 1890s were such successful crucibles of novel artistic creation
0: I love that you brought in the natural world because the disconnect between humans and natural world is the costly one, extremely costly. The other thing I want to bring in is that the uncertainty of the pandemic evokes the usual responses, which is either fearful, in which there's a contraction and trying to predict, trying to re-control the uncertainty, try to manage it in a controlling type of way, or Next. curiosity, which is all that list of questions you said. Well, what, what do we need to look at here? Not through the lens of fear but through the lens of seeing what do we need to take into account? So I think that that means that in the future, there'll be a better chance of hiring that liberal arts person because they're quite comfortable with uncertainty and can actually use it to to create something new out of the conditions they're in. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to add?
1: Well, in uncertainty, I would say, you know, if there are people wondering, well, how do we look for that? Well, certainly you can ask them questions about how they may have proceeded in the face of uncertainty in the past or how they, Showed courageous nonconformity at some personal or professional risk. What builds uncertainty? Look at artists. Look at people who are deep readers of literary fiction, which often has enormous ambiguity, just like uh, foreign cinema, which is a reason many Americans don't like it. It's, it's harder to grasp, it's more like a novel. Readers of, of literary fiction are higher in empathy. Look at people who've, who've practiced meditative disciplines right? Buddhism is just completely chock full of theory and practice, best practices on managing uncertainty. There's so much knowledge out there, and there's so many ways that people have come by these things that really matter. If it can't be reduced to to something really easily graspable, it just seems to get left out of the superficial analysis of the corporate world. And, and that's a real mistake. I mean, there's a lot of complexity and knowledge in people that we're not going to drag out of them by scanning their resume for keywords. And, and that's our loss as employers. And it's, and it's their loss as people who may never find the work that gets them into flow and, or takes them out of the, the misery or, or anxiety or depression that, that much of our population lives in slogging through jobs that are poor matches with bosses who are micromanagers who can't live in a moment of uncertainty and have to try to control everything. It's a similar kind of problem. If we could just learn to hold on to things more lightly and not grasp and and push and try to control, we'd make more space for creativity and for inspiration and for relationship. And well-being. Really
0: being able to stay well through, through uncertain, unpredictable, and even ambiguous uh, conditions because you've got that capacity not to panic when the uncertain moment comes in. Where would you like to send people for more information on what you're doing, your books, all of that? Can you share that information, please?
1: HighPerformanceStory.com has information on the consulting and coaching I do. And there is a, a, a section on the homepage that's devoted to Ordinary Magic. Promises I kept to my mother through life, illness, and a very long walk. It's on Amazon as well, an ebook, hardcover, and I did the audio book, which was my own exercise in embracing uncertainty because I, I'd, I'd never done anything like that before. But I, I read my own audio book.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Cameron. I love the conversation. It was great fun. I hope our listeners enjoyed it as well. I look forward to chatting with you more and to seeing what Human Centric Labs does. And I really particularly appreciate the high performance story part because I think strategic narrative is an emergent direction for what we can do with strategy. The assumption is the pandemic will end. When the pandemic ends, climate change will become perhaps more perceptible. It's the same characteristics. It's just not immediate and in your face. So the way of seeing that we develop through the pandemic, I think, directly uh, applies to how we handle the next set of disruptions at the systemic level that are embodied in food supply, food security, energy security, through climate change. Thanks again for being on the program. Great to have you.
1: Great to be here.
0: Anytime there's an interruption in your personal life, such as a divorce or financial loss, it's an opportunity to rethink, step back, reinvent, shift perspective, and redesign what you want from life. For business, it's no better, and that's what the pandemic has offered an opportunity to do, to step back and see which systems and processes are working for people in our company and for customers as well as for the vitality of the company alone and to really update them and bring them to a, a capacity to work with complexity and ambiguity, the uncertainty that we're working with in today's decision-making environment, with greater effect and benefit for all. So I welcome you to apply some of the conversation that we've had. That There will be many different facets. This is the first in the series. More to come. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to getting your feedback. Please share this episode if you feel it offers value to HR professionals who are unsure about how to proceed going forward, and if they really want talent, what they can do to get it. My name is Donna Jones. I'm the host of the program. You can find me at on LinkedIn with my handle, D-A-W-N-A-H Jones. Thanks for joining me. See you soon.